Okay, we are in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you've never been to the book of Ecclesiastes, just kind of open your Bible up to the middle and then go right a little ways and you'll, you'll find it, I think. Uh, David got us started last week and we're going to pick it up today in chapter 1 and verse 12. It says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wealth, wisdom, surpassing all who were over in Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, I perceive this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. We're going to stop there for a minute. We're continuing with his count of the, the wise preacher who is trying to make sense of life under the sun. And as we saw last week, under the sun refers to life minus God, which describes most people in this world. Uh, either uh, They either refuse to believe You know, like they intentionally leave him out or they functionally leave him out. This is pretty common. They'll either refuse to believe he exists or they believe he exists, but they just want him to kind of stay in the background, stay on the sidelines. If I need you for something, I'll call you, but don't interfere in my life. Don't mess up what I've got going. That's kind of what we see happening. And the preacher tells us that when we do that, life becomes pointless and futile. And as Pastor David mentioned last week, we believe that King Solomon, David's son, is the one who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. So this is the preacher who is speaking. And there are several things that make this obvious, I think, but especially verse 16, where he makes this claim that I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were in Jerusalem before me. Nobody else could really make that claim. He makes similar statements about his wealth and his achievements in chapter two. And if you know the story of Solomon, you may recall what it says in first Kings chapter three, when The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night shortly after he inherited the throne from his father, David. And we're told that God came to him and said, ask whatever you want and I will give it to you. Can you imagine if God came to you in a dream tonight and said that? What what would you come up with? Um, I I don't know that I'd like to think I would come up with what Solomon came up with, but I'm I'm thinking of the, you know, the three more wishes kind of thing that that's more what runs through my head. Solomon replied with something rather surprising. He asked God for wisdom. He knew he was going to need it in order to lead God's people. And so he asked God for an understanding mind and the ability to discern between good and evil. And verse 10 of that chapter says that it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked for this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, Behold, I now do according to your word. I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no king shall compare with you all your days. So to me, this, this it doesn't leave room for anybody other than Solomon to have written this. But the weird thing is that Solomon didn't just write the book of Ecclesiastes. He wrote another, a couple of books actually, but um, another, the majority of the book um, that I'm going to talk about. And and if you were to hold these two books side by side, I'm talking about the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes, you would, you would think that there's two different authors. 
there's a pessimist writing the book of Ecclesiastes, and there's an optimist writing the book of Proverbs. Or you've got one author with, you know, some kind of multiple personality disorder. Um, you know, like Solomon's off his meds or something is kind of what you think. But that's not what's happening here. Proverbs is the kind of book that teaches us that when we choose wisdom and follow God's word, it will lead to blessing in life. It's not a book of promises. It's what we can normally expect to happen when we do life with God. So, so you'll see things in Proverbs like if you work hard and are diligent, you will reap the blessings of that. And if you're a sloth and you're lazy, your life will be a struggle. Those are the kinds of things we see in Proverbs, just true principles in life. But Ecclesiastes is very different than that. It has a very different purpose, though. What it's doing is it's revealing the dismal reality of what life is like apart from God. And the sad reality about Solomon is that he knew both of these things. He walked with God and he walked without God. And he's, he's, he's telling us what that's like. He was clearly one of those people that and maybe you've heard of these people that have to kind of find things out for themselves, do it the hard way. Um, some of you may be those people. I'm not pointing any fingers. You know, you know who you are, right? Um, so instead of applying God's wisdom that, 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 that God gave to him and following God's prescription for life, Solomon had to do his own research. I've had kids like that. I've had both. You know, they can learn from somebody else. And then they're like, ah, no, I'm going to go do my own research. He was uh, an own research kind of guy. So he abandoned life with God and he struck out on his own to see what he could find. And I believe in verse 17, he, he's explaining this. He's, he's saying that in an earthly way, he tried everything out. He tried, he tried the wise life and he tried the foolish life, like the, the you know, wisdom and total depravity. He kind of ran the gamut there. So I tried the lifestyles of the rich and famous and I tried the lifestyles of the, the you know, ridiculous and foolish, like all the way from champagne and caviar to Schlitz malt liquor and Domino's pizza. It's like both extremes. In verse 13, he says that this whole thing was just an unhappy business. Verse 13, again, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, it's all vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. He, he admits that it's an unhappy business trying to do this. Um, you think about, would you ever start a business if you knew it would never make money? It would always be in the red. There's no way you'll ever make a profit. That would be foolish, and that's what he's saying. This won't work. Imagine devoting yourself to trying to understand and solve this world's problems while leaving God out of the equation. And it's not hard to imagine. I mean, it's an exercise in futility, but that's exactly what we see happening all around us all the time today. Think about all the crazy ideas that, that people have right now about how to fix this world, the stuff that they're coming up with. Um, and since there's nothing new under the sun, we can assume these same kinds of crazy ideas were going on in Solomon's time, and he was watching all that as well. No wonder he was exasperated. There are times today when I have to wonder if I'm dreaming or if my water supply has been drugged somehow. And I, I just look around at the headlines I read and, and I think there's no way this is real. I'm on, you know, I'm, I'm on a satire site and I got mixed up and no, these are real headlines and it, it doesn't make any sense to me. It's an unhappy business. And that's why in verse 18, Solomon says, for in much wisdom is much vexation. That's a great word. It just means grief. He who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. Some of you guys know exactly what this is like. You get on YouTube and you're going to try to get to the bottom of this thing. And you start just watching, you know, after like 15 hours, you've got like, you know, 
your eyes taped up so you can still see and you think you're going to, and, and all that's happening is you're becoming more discouraged, more frustrated, more exasperated. The more you learn, the worse it gets. And that's what he's describing. The wisest man ever applied his whole heart to examining the state of this world. And he included, concluded that everything that's crooked in the world can't be made straight and everything that's lacking can't be made up apart from God. And that explains a lot, doesn't it? Think about all the time, money, and effort that's expended in trying to fix this place. It can't be done no matter how hard we try because what we're dealing with is a spiritual problem and nobody's trying to look there. So what's crooked can't be made straight and what's lacking can't be counted. And notice that he says that this business of getting frustrated when trying to do this is from God. I find that fascinating. God set it up this way on purpose so that when we got done chasing wind, we might chase after him. The good news is for Christians, we're looking forward to a place where nothing needs to be straightened and where there is nothing lacking in his future kingdom. I can't wait for that day. It's exactly the opposite of what Solomon is talking about. The more we dig into heaven, the longer we're there, the more we experience it, the more joy we will have, the more happy business it will be. We have the answer to what everyone is looking for in this world. Don't forget that, Christian. You have what everyone is looking for in Christ. They're desperate for it. So this is why the book of Ecclesiastes is such a relevant and contemporary book for today. Is it depressing? <laughs> yeah, a bit. But it's meant to be because it's, it's showing you the other side of the coin. Everyone out there is trying to find meaning and purpose and fulfillment without including God. So they're, they're looking to knowledge and education and wealth and pleasure and work and fame and sex. And, and, and God knows none of it. It can't be done. It, it cannot be done. And Solomon figured it out too. God has made life meaningless without him by design. There's a, there's a great quote that sums this up. And I can't remember if it was uh, Augustine or Augustine that said it. Uh, that was pretty good, wasn't it? Because nobody can agree on how to say his name. So I thought I'd just slip that by and see if it worked. <laughs> cover both my bases. This is the quote. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. It's true. And so the writer is hoping that we will be kind of the kind of people that learn by example and that we will take his word for it, that none of these paths are going to lead us where we want to go. So, so Ecclesiastes in that way is kind of like a wise old man commenting on the world and warning us not to make the same mistakes he made. He's inviting us to walk down a few of these roads. He's already been down to see what we can learn from him. It's kind of like, it reminds me of, um, you know, Dickens classic tale, the Christmas Carol, where you've got, you know, the Ebenezer Scrooge, this man whose you know, life is, is miserable. And so he gets the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, the ghost of Christmas future to, to kind of show him what life is like. I'm not saying Solomon's a ghost or anything weird like that, but, but this is kind of the, the way I picture it. He, he's paying us a visit to help us figure this life out by asking and answering these important questions. Does life have any point to it? And if so, what is the point? How do we make sense of this world? And the answer, of course, is that apart from God, there is no point and you can't make sense of it. But with God, you absolutely can. You know, I, I didn't have a godly Christian grandpa um, I, that, that would like sit me on his knee and tell me about life and tell me about God and teach me these things. And in some ways, I, I feel like this is kind of what this book is. Um, so I, I really do love this. This book tells us that God cares about us. He cares about the paths that we go down and he cares about where we end up. So 
Chapter 2 kind of starts out with Solomon taking us on a tour of all these places that he went to and came up empty. And, and these places are going to look very familiar to you because they're the same places that, that we go to. He's going to cover a lot of the same ground that, that, that we go to. So this is, these are kind of, this is just kind of a brief list of where he's going to go. First one is pleasure. The next one is enjoyment and laughter, alcohol, art and culture, nature, uh, creativity and projects, money and possessions, music, sex, and then work and achievements. Sounds like pretty familiar territory, does it not? So he starts out with destination pleasure. In, in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched my, my heart, how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. I like that he adds that because I think you would think, all right, you know, Solomon's drunk. You know, he's like, ah, vanity. You know, you picture that. He's saying, no, I didn't go that far with it. I, I did use, you know, I tried alcohol, but I didn't get drunk. I wasn't out of my mind. He wants to make sure you know that. He'll say other things like this throughout, which I kind of find funny. I searched my heart, how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what good or what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. The next stop he goes to is accomplishments in verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools with which to water the forest of growing trees. The pools of Solomon are still in existence today. You can see them. They're just magnificent. This guy wasn't kidding around. He didn't just like have a little garden in the back of his house. He went, he went nuts with this stuff. He went to town. Next stop is possessions in verse 7. He says, I bought male and female servants, and I had servants who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than anyone who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women. I think this is funny. Like today we just, you grab Spotify, you put it on, you know, you have a, you have a way to listen to music. He just bought the band, you know, brought them into his house. That's, that's pretty cool. He could do that. The next stop is women. He says, I had many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Uh, many might be an understatement here. Uh, he had 300 concubines. And if you don't know what a concubine is, uh, good for you. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic that you don't. But it's just basically a, a woman who's not your wife, but that you get all the benefits as though she were your wife. And, and he didn't stop at 300 concubines. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines, 700 wives, a thousand women to keep track of somehow. I'm not saying anything bad here, but I am just, I'm very pleased that the Lord has blessed me with one. <laughs> very good one. It's, it's very good. Yikes. Verse nine. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. He, he tells you that again. I didn't ever go around the bend. I didn't lose my mind. I still have my wisdom. He says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I, it's amazing. There's a, I, can't, I should have looked at, looked or written it down or whatever, but it talks about like what was needed for, for Solomon's just daily routine. And if you go find the list, it's crazy. It's enough to feed something like 50,000 people every day, the stuff he had. That was just a normal day. <laughs> it's just like, what? All right. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my, how, my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was the reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended doing it. And behold, 
All was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So you see him coming back to the same depressing conclusion. Tried it all. It didn't quench my thirst. It had no purpose and meaning. There it is again. In verse 12, he makes an interesting statement because I know there's people out there that think uh, Solomon just, you know, he, he tried, but he didn't try like I would try. He didn't give it that kind of effort. And so, and Solomon just says, wait a second in verse 12. So I turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. He's trying to let you know, we don't need to follow up on his research. He did a very thorough job and there isn't anything for us to uncover that he might've missed because you know, there's people out there that think they will. Solomon kind of went pro. Um, he was everything he ever wanted was at, at his disposal. He was the poster child for having more, trying more, doing more. He did it better than you could. And it left him empty. If it was true for him, how much more will it be true for us? But, but I know that we tend to always think that happiness and fulfillment is out there. If we just get a little more, that's kind of ingrained in us. Somehow we have these expectations about life that we think will end up satisfying us. And you know what I'm talking about? When I finally get married, uh, when I, when I finally have kids, when I finally get that house or that perfect job, or even live in the perfect place, it's funny right now. That's a big thing right now for Christians. And I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but I know so many Christians right now, they're saying, I need to move from this area and move in Idaho for whatever reason is the promised land right now. You know what? I'm from Idaho. It ain't that great. <laughs> you know what? You know what they have in Idaho? Sinners who need Jesus. There you go. You know, you're going to get there and be like, oh, the geographical didn't work, you know? So, but we do that thing. We, we think that our fulfillment will finally be realized when these things occur. But what happens they don't end up completing us the way that we think they will. It's just that it's like that old song, same as it ever was, same as it ever was. There it is. Sorry if you got that in your head. You may find yourself. It's funny. Solomon concluded that the destination falls short, but he does acknowledge that there is excitement in, in the prospect that keeps us trying. I don't know if you noticed that in verse 10, but he said, my heart found pleasure in all my toil, but that was the reward for all my toil. So he's, he's kind of saying the chase is fun. I'll admit that, uh, the, the, you know, because it's that idea of that anticipation while you're doing it. But, but once the, once the chase is over and you catch what you were after, what happens? You know, the joy kind of fades pretty quickly, but there's, there's excitement in the chase, isn't there? I mean, have you ever watched a dog chase its tail? It's, I mean, you're, you're kind of going, you know, really, dude, really? You think that, you know, that does it for you. It's like, okay, but that's what we look like when we're doing this. You know, it's fun while it's going, but at, at some point you just have to realize I'm, I'm, this is silly. What am I doing? Don't confuse the chase with the destination. It's kind of like that toy that you wanted when you were a kid. Uh, or that toy that you want as an adult, quite frankly, it doesn't really change much. You know, we're, we're the same way. We build up th these expectations of this thing. We want it so much and we can't, I mean, the anticipation is killing us. It's going to be, when I finally get this, it's going to be epic. I can't wait. And then you get it. And what happens in a week? It's like, meh, it's all right. I like it but it's not doing the thing I thought it was going to do. But you know what will do it? The next thing. That'll be the thing. And then it's the whole process starts over again. That's what Solomon says. You're just chasing after wind because your, your happiness, your contentment, your fulfillment, your satisfaction will never terminate at that object. It will never be the destination because it was, it's not meant to. God, your creator, designed you differently than that. 
He didn't design you so you can find your fulfillment in a created thing. He designed you so you can find it in him only. I mean, it's funny. The guy who designed it gets to choose how it works, right? You can't take a spoon and, you know, build a house with it because it wasn't designed to do that. You can't do this either. You're not designed to. I love that picture of chasing, chasing wind. I I think it's just funny. I don't know if you could just imagine, you know, you looked outside right now and there's like one of those little dust bunnies going and you saw some guy out there trying to, trying to grab it and trying to get his arms around it and catch it. And we would think he was a madman, right? But that's how he's describing us. Just so you, just so you don't miss the picture. Solomon's trying to warn us to keep us from going down these disappointing paths that will inevitably, you know, that will inevitably lead us to emptiness. He's saying there's nothing here. Turn back. But some of us don't learn by example. We have to, we have to do it the hard way. We convince ourselves that the writer's experience is a fluke and it'll be different for us. We don't believe the dead end signs. We have to find out for ourselves. And if that describes you, according to what Solomon writes, brace yourself for despair. Because that's exactly where he goes next in verses 13 through 23. Uh, Solomon took wisdom, madness, and folly for a test drive, and he didn't like the way they performed at all. So he becomes extremely despondent, depressed. And and I'll just warn you, like if you thought the book of Ecclesiastes was depressing, he's like going to turn it up to 11 now. This is really depressing. And I'm just going to summarize his conclusions. First thing is he realizes that living according to earthly wisdom is better than living foolishly. Which is, you know, true if you have somebody that tries to live, uh, you know, an upright life with integrity and you've got like somebody that stars in an Adam Sandler movie kind of thing, you know, you know, one's going to be better than the other. He admits that. But then in the very next breath, he says, you know what, though, they both succumb to the exact same end. They're both going to die. They're both going to return to dust and they're both going to be forgotten. It's like, wah, wah. <laughs> like, like, all right. <laughs> And then the next thing he does is he gets irritated by the thought that somebody else is going to get his stuff after he's gone. Like they're going to receive, I built pools, I built gardens, and some person's going to get them that doesn't deserve it. And they might be an idiot. That's kind of what he says. And it's kind of funny. It's true. He can't control that. And it bothers him. It kind of irks him. So his journey ends in despair and hopelessness, which describes so many people in our world today, that there can be this sense of pointlessness to life when we only have the horizontal view in place. We can easily become disillusioned with the monotony of life where every day feels the same, looks the same week after week, month after month. Um, Matt Chandler said in his sermon on this subject, life is a lot more like the movie Groundhog Day than we care to admit. And then this, the commentator that I was looking at, Daniel Aiken, kind of, kind of runs with this and, and takes it a little bit further. And I'm going to steal from both of them now, so I'm just giving credit where credit's due. Um, I like this idea, and I just recently watched the movie, so I figured I had to do this. If you're not familiar with the movie, uh, the main character is Phil Connors, played by Bill Murray. He's stuck in the same day over and over again, no matter what he does, and it, that day happens to be Groundhog Day. So every, every day at 6 a.m., the alarm clock goes off in his room, and it's playing the same song, right? It's an annoying, sorry if you like them, Sonny and Cher songs. You know? I got you. It's just every day to where he finally just starts smashing this thing on the floor every day, which, which I could relate to. But he's forced to go through the same routine, the same place with the same people over and over and over again. And he tries to break the monotonous cycle by finding meaning and purpose by trying the same thing Solomon mentions. First, he tries wisdom. He tries to figure out logically what must be done to solve the problem. There must be a way out of this. And so he, he, he applies wisdom to try to figure it out. 
When that doesn't work and he isn't able to make sense of things, he eventually asks a question. What would you do if you were stuck in one place and every day was exactly the same and nothing that you did mattered? I think that's what people are feeling like today. And the answer is, if nothing matters, do whatever the heck you want. Isn't that what we're seeing right now? Everywhere? We've taught people nothing matters. Doesn't matter at all. So they're like, all right, I'll go behave that way. That sums up our godless society so much. So back to Phil Connors, he abandons wisdom. That didn't work. And so now he jumps into the deep end of madness and folly. He, he goes trying to start, you know, he does all the things that you think would, would do it. Okay, nothing matters. I'm going to go do this. So he goes into a restaurant. He orders everything on the menu and he's got it all on the table in front of him. And he's just stuffing his face, gorging himself with every, you know, delightful thing there is. Um, he starts, he gets drunk and goes on, you know, eludes the police, goes on a car chase and, you know, why not? doesn't matter. Uh, he, he starts seducing women. He starts, you know, because it's the same day over and over again. So he'll try a line that doesn't work. The next day he'll come back and try one that he knows well. And he's doing that kind of stuff. He robs an armored car so that he can, you know, buy uh, his own or an armored truck rather so that he can buy like his brand new fancy car. And then he gets himself some new duds. It happens to look like Clint Eastwood and the good, bad and the ugly. It's ridiculous. Like a poncho with his, like, Apparently that was, that was what he thought was cool. And he even like, since nothing matters, you know, when Ned Ryerson, the annoying insurance salesman comes running up to him, finally he just punches him right in the face because it doesn't matter. I'm not suggesting violence, but Ned's annoying and he, why not? Eventually after trying all that, he, he kind of becomes boring and he really doesn't like who he's becoming. So he moves on to try to find fulfillment in bettering himself through increasing in knowledge and in arts and culture. And so he learns to play the piano. He takes up ice sculpting and he learns, you know, poetry, he starts doing things like that. None of that hits the mark either. So eventually he becomes filled with despair, knowing that he's trapped in a situation with no way out. And I, I feel like that describes where a lot of people are in our world today. They've tried everything they can think to try and nothing's, nothing's working. And the truth is that this is the natural conclusion to come to for someone who's trying to do life without God. It's what you should expect. Well, Solomon concludes this chapter on, on a slightly hopeful note. In verse 24, he says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. He's, he's pretty much saying that, that there's a common grace that God has given to his creation so that we, we can still find little glimpses of enjoyment. Um, it's not completely and utterly just despair, but, but we get these little tiny bits of grace from God, little peaks into, you know, hopefully that would lead us to him. In verse 25, he says, for apart from God, who can eat and who can have enjoyment for to the one who pleases God, I'm sorry, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity, the striving after the wind. So he's consistent with where he always comes back to. I said it was a slightly hopeful note. So the question is, what does Solomon hope that we will learn from this? And, and I've got just a few quick takeaways. The first one is this. Wisdom, wealth, and accomplishments cannot change our human nature. They can't fix what's broken in us. Uh, God gave Solomon wisdom, wealth, and the ability for all the accomplishments. And, and did it fix Solomon? Nope. No, our problem doesn't exist outside of ourselves in our circumstance. 
It exists inside of ourself. We are broken. We're like a car without an engine, you know, trying to Fred Flintstone our way through life. It's, it's exhausting. It's not going to work. It's not going to get us anywhere. The only thing that will fix us is a new repaired nature, and only God can provide that. So God has to say, let there be life and cause us to be born from above if we're going to be able to experience life as it was meant to be experienced. And this is why Jesus came. Jesus came to make the crooked things straight and to, you know, fill up the things that are lacking. Through his son, God has given us a way to escape Groundhog Day, a way to get away from the monotonous and the meaningless stuff in life and to experience abundant, eternal, meaningful life with him. The next takeaway is this, that no created thing will ever be able to satisfy us. I've said that in several different ways already, but it's just a, I just want to make sure you get that. No created thing will ever be able to satisfy us. But that doesn't stop us from trying, does it? <laughs> I don't know. I think to myself, why do we fall for it? You would think that, that you would at some point realize it, but we, we just like, nah, maybe, maybe this time it'll be different. It's kind of like I've never been stranded in a desert, but apparently you can get to that point where you see these mirages and they look real. They look like, oh, there's, oh, there's water in a palm tree. That's exactly what I've been hoping to find. And so you run over to this and it's nothing there. Just, just mouthfuls of hot sand. You know, I'm just picturing, you know, oh, that's not good. There's no refreshment there. I think the problem in part is that we've been lied to our entire lives about this. This is something that started from the very beginning. We, you know, we've been taught that we can achieve heaven on earth. We've bought into this idea, even us, you know, here locally of the American dream and we refuse to give up on it. You know, once I get the right job, once I get the right spouse, the, the, the house, the car, the income, whatever it is, then I'll finally have arrived and I'll achieve the dream. But like I said, this was present in the garden of Eden. They just called it one more tree syndrome. That was the same thing though, isn't it? Oh, but what about that one over there? Same idea there. Here's the problem with this mentality. Look at the people that have achieved it. Think about all the people out there that have, that have made it. You know, the Hollywood elite, uh, movie stars, the rock stars, the, you know, sports stars, the politicians, sadly. I mean, they've achieved it all. Do they seem, do they seem you know, really happy and really satisfied and really fulfilled? I think about all the, the, the famous people that have taken their own lives. You know, people that you just, you're shocked to hear it. I remember thinking, you know, how, what, how you had it all. What that tells us is that it's not true. It's not, it doesn't work. And the same thing is true, by the way, of finding that right person. I don't know if you've, I don't know where this came from, but there's a real thing that people believe right now about soulmates. Like there, I have a soulmate. They're out there somewhere waiting for me. And it's just a matter, I got to find them. And then what will happen? I will be complete, right? I don't know what this is. This is why so many people give up on their marriages though, because they look over their spouse and they're like, well, clearly you're not my soulmate. I mean, not me. I'm just an example. That sounded bad. I was picturing her saying it to me for what it's worth. But I mean, you know what I mean? You're going to say, well, you don't complete me. So, so whoever it is, somebody's out there that will. And, and that's, and they believe this. It's not true. I think it's, I mean, I'm so glad that my wife isn't looking to me to complete her. It's just a silly thing. I can't complete any, anybody. I mean, I can't, you know, I can't, not myself. Yeah. I mean, nobody, nothing. It's not good. The kind of pressure you put on somebody to, you know, Hey, I need you to complete me. Oh, is that all? 
sure, I'll get right on it. It's like, no, it's not going to happen. This is why Solomon could say with assurance that everything is meaningless because the thing we are looking for ultimately does not exist under the sun, you know, here, this way. But we run around trying to find it, looking for that thing that will complete us. It keeps eluding us because the broken creation can't do it. It can't complete us. It wasn't designed to. The only one who can do this is the one who completed me. You know who completed me? Jesus. All my life, I was missing something. I was lacking. I tried a lot of stuff. I didn't, you know, I didn't give it a a Solomon try, but I tried a lot and and it left me empty. And it's been a long time now. It was 1986 when, when I believed and Jesus entered my life. And, and you know what? I'm still amazed. It's not like a week later I'm going, meh. No, it's like, I'm still amazed every day that I have him and I'm complete and I, and I still have more completion to do. Don't get me wrong. Um, you know, there's a future completion that I'm looking forward to, but I don't feel like I'm lacking. Jesus is the one that can give us living water that will quench our thirst. And the good news is that we, he's provided a way for everyone to have that by coming in faith, trusting in what he's done on their behalf on the cross, placing your faith in his death, burial, and resurrection for your life. When we believe that, when we confess that he is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, we can have that eternal life. And I love that verse. He who has the son has the life. The last takeaway is this, that, that all things are ours to enjoy when God is included. Um, some of you heard me read that list earlier that, that Solomon, all the places Solomon looked to for happiness. And you might've noticed that those are good things. I mean, those, those are enjoyable things you just mentioned. What do you, you know, what, what, why can't we look there? And you're right. They can be so that pleasure, pleasure can be an, an amazing thing. It's fun and laughter. Have you ever just been with somebody where you laugh so hard that you, your stomach hurt and you're, you know, you're crying and that's what a gift that is. Laughter is good medicine for the soul. Alcohol. I got to be careful with this one because most people can't do alcohol, right? There is a way to enjoy a little alcohol and God says your heart will be merry. But did I mention most people can't do alcohol right? So be careful with that one. But it can be, it can be a gift from God according to what his word says. Art and culture, yes. Nature, when you go out and just see the creation, I mean, isn't it just amazing what it can do for you? Creativity and projects, they're wonderful things to get involved in. Money and possessions, music. I love music. I can't imagine life without music. I just always have like a soundtrack going in my life. Wonderful. Sex, I probably don't have to to explain it, you know, that this is a good thing for us to enjoy when we do it according to God's design. Good. When we don't do it according to God's design, sin. Enough said. Work and achievements can be good too. So none of these things are bad in and of themselves when they're done the way God wants them. The problem is when we take any of those things and we make them the ultimate thing, that's when it becomes a problem. We look to those things to be the place where the journey ends. Does that make sense? That's where it becomes a problem. They're meant to propel us to God. So no matter what it is, you can be eating a delicious plate of food. And if you think that your happiness is going to terminate there, you're, you're, it's not going to. But, but when, you, when, you, when you let it propel you up to God, kind of trampoline you up to him, to the, the one who gave you this wonderful thing, and he's the one that gave me the sense of smell and the sense of taste and the ability to enjoy these things, and I'm worshiping God, not the plate of food, that's the difference. I always go to food, so I can't have half the stuff I want anymore, so that's probably why. So the goal really isn't just to power through life in hope of some future joy or meaning, but to find joy and meaning in the everyday things that God has given us. 
when we eat, when we drink, when we work, the relationships that we have. All of these things should create worship and praise and gratitude to the one who gave them to us as these very good gifts. And this is why your vantage point matters so much. Because if all we, if all we see is this way, and we never, we never see this way, that, you know, something ha- this has to break through into our vision so that we can see it. Everything under the sun will be meaningless. But at the minute that God opens our eyes to him, to the vertical plane of who he is and what he's done, everything changes. Everything uh, has meaning. Everything's going someplace and matters. Uh, I've been uh, having to walk a lot because of my heart surgery recovery thing. And uh, I've got two ways that I can walk. I can go outside in my neighborhood with my wife and walk. Or I can go to a medical facility where, and I'm not, this isn't a mask thing, I promise, but where I have to wear a mask on a treadmill uh, in a miserable medical office. So treadmill, mask, just imagine you're not going anywhere. It's monotonous. It feels like three or four times as long as it does outside. It's horrible. It's like, that's like the black and white version of walking. And then I can go outside in, in God's creation with my wife and enjoy the color version of it. It's night and day. To me, this is the difference between these two planes. One is just horrible. I don't ever want to go back to that. As a matter of fact, I canceled my future appointments. I'm like, I'm going to walk outside so much better. We get to live life that way. So, so when this reality leaves out this reality, you end up exactly with what Solomon described. But when you get the, the horizontal line and the vertical line together, I know this is cheesy, but you see what it makes? I mean, this is just like, it makes something that changes everything. When God came down to us, God has provided a way for us to have life, to enjoy creation the way he intended it to be done. And that can, be, that can happen, if, if this describes anything you're experiencing, the monotony, the pointlessness, if you, if you can relate to that, that can all change through a relationship with your creator. And that's only made possible through Jesus Christ, his son. So don't leave here today, please, without finding out what, what, what you need to do. And it really is just a matter of believing in, in what he's done for you on the cross. Father, I just want to pray that... Um, First, I thank you for a book like this that, that gives us kind of the other side of the coin so that we understand what we have in you. Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't know that yet, I pray that today would be the day when they would turn away from their sin, they would turn away from everything they've been doing, and they would look to you for the answer. And we know that that's only found through your son, Christ. And so we pray that um, if there's anybody that needs to believe today, that they would, that they would trust in the work that Jesus did on the cross, his sacrificial death for them the burial and resurrection that occurred that proved that, that he is who he says he is and that he did what he said he did and that we would have life, Lord. Uh, thank you for not leaving us to ourselves, but for um, desiring a relationship with your creation and for making a way for us, Lord, to, to escape uh, the doom that's here. We're grateful in Jesus' name. Amen.